Okay, so if you don't know, if you're new here today, uh, my name is Doug Reeside. I'm one of the elders here, but I'm not the usual speaker, so please don't be turned away from the church because <laughs> what you hear today. It seems whenever uh, my wife and I uh, have moved to a new area, you know, as you do, you look around at several different churches, and I feel like every time we go to a church for the first time, there's always something strange going on. It's either Youth Sunday or there's a guest speaker or Mission Sunday or something. So anyway, I hope that's not the case for any of you. Um, so today we're talking about the passage that um, we read earlier that from the book of James. Um, that's, I think, a really, really difficult passage. Um, this is the passage with grieve, mourn, and wail, and humble yourself before the Lord, and, and all these really, I think, difficult teachings. Uh, when I was in junior high, um, around the time I became a Christian, my Sunday school teacher challenged us, challenged us the Sunday school kids, to memorize the book of James with him. So I was one of those obsessively adult-pleasing kids who found identity and self-worth in being a good kid and a rule follower, so I decided to try to take the challenge. And I made it, I think, through about chapter three, but it was really, really hard. Now, I was also a theater kid, and so I would try to memorize something as I would, uh, a script, so I'd be trying to remember the general flow of the passage, the kind of the dialogue that's happening. And the New Testament writers, when you try to memorize, if you've ever tried to memorize a book of, or a letter of Paul, um, there's, uh, it's a different rhetorical style than we're used to today, but it's, it usually has some sort of connective tissue throughout it. But the book of, in the book of James, the passages seem at times almost entirely unconnected. Uh, finding a connective tissue to try to prompt your memory to recall the next line can be really difficult. And biblical scholars generally seem to think that this is because James might be something like a collection of wise sayings of the person of James. So in that way, it's almost maybe more like the book of Proverbs than Paul's letter to the Romans. The ideas are each little nuggets of truth, but James may not have actually intended us to try to find connections or that many connections between them. In, in fact, some scholars argue that James based his letter on the teachings of Jesus, that they were sort of uh, remembering what Jesus said and here's some more teaching to explain it. And there's a lot of passages in the book of James that do seem to come directly from the Gospels. There's the instruction not to swear, the emphasis on the poor, the instruction to be joyful or glad in the face of persecution. Uh, but in any case, uh, James is at the very least a letter, uh, a very practical letter of very wise teachings. And at times it can seem like it's addressed like Paul's letters to a very personal situation in, or a particular situation in a church. But if you look at the first verse of the book of James, uh, James writes it to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations. So he's writing a general letter. He's writing it to the, general, to the Jewish Christians probably scattered across the Roman Empire. Um, that scattered across the Roman Empire, I think in some translations is translated as the diaspora, the kind of uh, spreading out of the, the seeds or the spores of the, um, of the church. Now he may have had particular situations in mind, but his message is universal. Christians, regardless of where they live, and probably even when they live, need to be reminded of the things that James writes in this letter, to care for the poor, to act out what they believe, um, not to judge, and to humble themselves before the Lord. And James also reminds us that it's not enough to simply read or hear or memorize the word of God. We also need to do what it says. So today, um, if you remember the key biblical truth, there's kind of four, at first, maybe sort of unconnected ideas, um, but I actually do think there are some connections among them. 
Um, and so today I want to look at these four main instructions in this passage. And if you've got a piece of paper, or if you just want to uh, use your bulletin, and you've, uh, there's pencils in the seat back in front of you, if you could take something that you can write on. And I'd like to, uh, you to, as you're listening today, as we're looking through this passage today, I'd like you to write out um, what you're going to do to obey each of the four instructions um, that we have that we're looking at. So the four instructions that I see in, the, in this passage today are, one, to pray selflessly. This is in the key biblical truth, so it should also be in your, um, your bulletin. So one, to pray selflessly. Two, to love God alone or love God faithfully. Three, to humble yourself. And four, do not judge. So as we go through these instructions, I'd like you to be thinking about what God might be calling you to do to respond to them. And if you're feeling, if you're feeling really brave, uh, maybe after the service you can share that list with someone uh, that you trust and ask them to keep you accountable uh, to make sure that we actually do what we hear, that we're not like the, the person who looks at his face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Okay, so point one, pray selflessly. So this passage begins, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. A lot of Paul's letters deal with a church in the midst of conflict. He looked at Galatians that was struggling with the idea of whether faith comes from obeying the letter of the, the Old Testament law or through grace. Um, there's, in 1 Corinthians, there's all sorts of uh, issues within the church that Paul is addressing. Um, but James, in this general letter to the Christians in the diaspora, assumes that any Christian community that receives his letter will experience some kind of an internal conflict. And whatever the sort of superficial cause is, James goes right to the root. Where there is conflict, there's usually some kind of felt insufficiency or scarcity. We don't often fight about things that we feel are truly in abundance. In most areas of New York State, for instance, we're blessed that we don't have huge battles over drinking water. Um, but, uh, and so we don't tend to fight about that. But uh, in, the, in the past, access to water and wells, and even in many areas of the world today, um, access to water is a source of sometimes very violent conflict. And James identifies that our bloodiest fights often grow from a sense of deprivation that we feel is somehow unjust. Someone else has something that is scarce, and we want it, and we feel like we should have it. It doesn't always have to be something as physical as water. Uh, sometimes it can be respect or honor or face time with someone we feel is important, or recognition for work that we did, or the ability even just to congratulate ourselves for being the one in the right theologically or politically, that there's this scarcity of being in the right and we wanna be the ones that, that owns that rightness. Um, James says that the problem can be resolved by asking God to give us what we truly need, to make up, uh, to fill in that, uh, that insufficiency, to, to eliminate the scarcity. God lacks nothing. And James says earlier in the book, in the context of those asking for wisdom, that he generously gives to all without finding fault. And he can eliminate the scarcity that causes conflict. Now, there are a lot of passages in the Bible where we are told to pray with faith and believe that God is predisposed 
to give us what we ask for. And those can be really difficult passages for Christians. I, I think that probably a lot of us who have lived as Christians for some time can remember a time when God answered a prayer in a way that felt really miraculous, that we really felt like we saw God working in an answer to what we had asked. But I think also a lot of us can think of a time when we prayed, and maybe along with others who we believe to be very holy and righteous, but we weren't given what we asked for. Maybe we were, were even given the opposite of what we asked for. We asked for bread, and it feels like we were given a stone. And some of the best Christian thinkers have tried to solve this problem because in some passages, it really does seem like the promise that what we ask with faith will be granted without condition. But here in James, we have an important qualification that helps us understand one of the reasons why we might not get why we why, what we request, that we ask with the motive of gratifying a selfish pleasure. Now, I feel like I should note at this point that there are some prayers, like, please help this person whose terrible situation has so moved my sympathies, that are made for purely selfless reasons that God, in his perfect wisdom, may decide not to grant. Just as a, a parent um, or a supervisor or a boss may have many reasons for turning down a request, God may choose to, uh, not to grant even our most selfless and faithful prayers. And this is a really hard part of learning to live by faith. But I, I actually don't think that's what James is talking about here. Here, the prayer that God grants is something that could resolve a conflict that is based on scarcity. And the result of the prayer is that you get something um, that can either help resolve that conflict or it can be spent on selfish pleasures. The problem is that sometimes it's really difficult, at least for me, to identify what a selfish pleasure is. Is God give me a good job, a selfish prayer? For James, the answer seems to be related to the response that we would give God if he at, responded to our request with the question, why? why? Why should I give you a good job? If the answer is so that I can afford possessions that will make other je others jealous, then it's probably the wrong motive. Um, maybe even is the answer so I can afford a nicer or a bigger apartment, a, a selfish motive. But by directing us in the midst of our conflict to introspective prayer, in which we have to question why we're asking uh, for, for what we're asking for, James forces us to consider why we want what we want and why we feel it's been denied to us. If what we're asking for, if the scarcity that's causing our conflict is um, really because of our own selfish motives and our own selfish desires, and if even God, who has infinite plenty and generously gives to all, may not think it's best to give it to us, then maybe we should rethink whether we really deserve to want to take it away from our neighbor. So commitment moment number one, you can take out your bulletins if you wanna write this down, pray selflessly. So think of a person with whom you're not especially at peace right now. A person that maybe makes you feel a little angry or upset or sort of cringe when you think of them. What do you need, what do you need that if granted would resolve the conflict that you have with them? Commit to ask God to meet that need. And while you're committing to do this, make sure that you use what he gives you to bring peace rather than simply enjoy that blessing for yourself. Point two, love God alone. So 
this is one of those moments where the connective tissue seems to suddenly break in James. Um, after talking to his readers about how they're fighting with each other and praying out of selfish motives, James seems to get himself a little worked up and starts yelling at his readers like an old school preacher. You adulterous people! Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he causes to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now, I've sat through sermons before where the preacher start, suddenly starts yelling out of nowhere at the uh, congregation, uh, maybe to sort of wake you up. So this rhetoric is kind of familiar. Um, but, uh, but I'm trying to figure out what James is doing here. Um, if we look at how he begins, you adulterous people, the language of the original in Greek, that adulterous people is actually just this one word and it's uh, gendered feminine. So it's actually adulteresses. Um, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hostility towards God? So James is, is calling us all, and by the way, all of the yous in this passage are plural. So it's all, all the second person you, the y'all or you guys or whatever we, whatever we use, um, which is sort of interesting, like uh, you all ask, but you don't all receive, that, that kind of thing. Um, so every time you see you, it's all, I think it's always second person in this passage. Um, so here, uh, James is, is calling us all adulteresses. And, and so the result, or the, the implication there is that, that God is a, is a husband in this analogy, that, and he's a generous husband, James says, who also longs jealously for us. That phrase that's in... Um, uh, uh, verse 5 here, or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? That can be translated a bunch of different ways, but basically, I mean, in, in every way, it means that there's, that God really longs for us and wants us to take advantage of him, that he wants us and he's also jealous for us. If we can try to make a connection with the previous passage and this one, it might mean that praying that would, uh, God would give us more ties to the world, that he would give us blessings that we want to spend on our own selfish pleasures, um, is somewhat akin to a, uh, a husband or a wife asking their spouse to lend them some cash so that they can take someone else out for a date. Um, God truly loves us, and he longs uh, for us to love, us, love him back. James says that the nature of this marriage is such that even friendship with the world is a kind of adultery. God is pictured as the jealous lover, and the trope of the jealous husband is common in literature and drama of many ages, including in the Roman era that, that James is writing in. If you're familiar with this uh, literature, wives are constantly being locked up in towers or guarded by untrustworthy servants. Um, and sometimes even if you know uh, Shakespeare's Othello, this jealousy has uh, more to do with the husband's own insecurities and often leads to tragedy when the husband's jealousy blinds him to reality. Uh, but if you remember in the Bible, sometimes analogies are meant to kind of end at a certain point, um, that uh, Jesus describes God as the unjust judge or says that we, are like, we should be like the unscrupulous steward of the master's money who kind of fakes his, uh, or changes the books on the, the servant's debts. Um, but in the NIV text note, uh, if you have the, the current NIV, you'll see that um, James might have a different reference in mind than the jealous husband of the drama and literature around him. He's using the same metaphor that God uses in the book of Hosea when he uh, has uh, the prophet marry an adulterous woman as an analogy for Israel seeking after other gods. In Hosea 3.1, uh, God says to Hosea, 
go and show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. God wants our whole devotion, but like Hosea, he allows us the freedom to be unfaithful. He's not like the, the Milius Gloriosus in um, the Roman drama that locks up his wife in a tower or in a, in a chamber. Um, but he's also not a husband that no longer cares for his wife, and so he doesn't care if she's unfaithful. But he loves us intensely and wants us to love him and only him. And this all makes sense at first. It feels familiar until I try to figure out what I'm supposed to do about that. We live in, a, in the world, but we're not supposed to be friends with it. And God once actually called this world very good. Um, why would friendship with a world, a world that God loved so much that he sent his only begotten son to save it, mean enmity with God? The word that the NIV translates as enmity, which also just means hostility, is the word that Paul uses in Romans 8 when he says the mind, is gover the mind governed by the flesh is hostile or is at enmity with God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Um, and then he goes, later on goes to say that those who live in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So maybe the world, in the sense that James is thinking about it, is the, this realm of the flesh that Paul describes in the passage. Later in Romans, Paul uh, instructs us, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That is, the more we think about how to make ourselves happy by satisfying the desires of our biology, sex, food, status in the tribe, um, the more we're likely to miss the eternal desires of unconditional love and participation in God's divine nature. So he's asking us to, to think not about what we want out of our psychology or out of our biology, but what we want out of our spirit. And this is really, really hard to do. But as James says, God is always able to provide us more grace, but we need to be humble enough to accept it. We have to recognize that our friendship with the realm of the flesh is actually adultery, a violation of our vow of faithfulness to God. And this means not seeking greater status or security, but actually seeking less, humbling ourselves. So challenge number two, if you want to pull out your bulletin. In what ways do you find yourself flirting with the world or with the realm of the flesh? Are you depending on anyone or anything other than God to satisfy your deepest desires? Do you believe that God can actually satisfy those desires? If not, are you willing to give him a chance to try? What would it mean this week to more fully trust God to provide what you truly want? after giving us this really hard instruction, James goes on to one of the bleakest passages in the New Testament. Submit yourself then, or yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I struggle with how to reconcile this with the instruction of Paul in Philippians and elsewhere to rejoice in the Lord always. I don't know how exactly, but I suspect that before we can fully understand what it means to rejoice in the Lord, we need to actually grieve the very real loss of the things our flesh desired most. We may find that our deeper desires, our spiritual desires, um, actually manifest, that, that are, are manifesting themselves in more physical desires, the desire to be popular or financially secure or, or respected, but that there's a deeper desire that can be satisfied more fully to our joy by walking to the spirit, by the spirit. But in order to get to those, to understand what those deeper desires are and to satisfy them, we need to get to the point where we're willing to give up and feel the pain that comes from putting the desires of our flesh, these more superficial desires to death. I'm reluctant to make connections in James where none may be intended, but I, I do wonder if this may actually tie back up to the first part of the passage today. As long as we believe that we've been wronged, that, we're the in, that we are the victim of injustice, it's difficult to receive the blessings of God. But if instead we are willing to humble ourselves and admit that we are the selfish ones, the wrong ones, the ones who don't really deserve anything from our adversary or from God, it's only then that we are in the position that we can begin to let God meet our real needs and lift us up. C.S. Lewis um, describes this uh, self-humiliation as an example of the sort of faith that we need to please God. In an essay on faith, he writes, in getting a dog out of a trap, in extracting a thorn from a child's finger, in teaching a boy to swim or rescuing one who can't, in getting a frightened beginner over a nasty place on the mountain, the one fatal obstacle may be their distrust. We ask them to believe that what is painful will relieve their pain, that what looks dangerous is their only safety. We ask them to accept apparent impossibilities, that moving the paw further back into the trap is the only way to get it out, that hurting the finger very much more is the only way to stop the finger from hurting, that water, which is obviously permeable, will resist and support the body, that to go higher and onto an exposed ledge is the only way not to fall. In other words, it is impossible to truly rejoice in the Lord as Paul commands until we have had cause to mourn the flesh. It just gets harder and harder, doesn't it? So challenge number three, um, humble yourself. What is the one thing that gives you joy right now that serves as a distraction from the deeper joy of a full commitment to God? Are you willing to get rid of it, even though it's painful or embarrassing? Is there some practical step that you can think of that would mean shifting your joy away from your biological or psychological self to your spiritual self? Yeah. So what is the one thing that gives you joy right now? that serves as a distraction from the deeper joy of a full commitment to God? And are you willing to get rid of that thing that gives you joy, even though it's painful or embarrassing to do so? And 
what is the pra practical step that you could do to, to make that shift? So if, if all of the connections that we've looked at so far have been a little tenuous, this last part seems almost entirely unconnected to me originally when I first look at it. Brothers and sisters, this is, remember by the way, this is right after um, grieve, mourn, and wail, turn your laughter to sorrow and your joy to gloom, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And then brothers and sisters do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Remember, some people think that uh, James is sort of a, a further explanation on Jesus' te Jesus's teachings, and this is clearly one of those cases, um, Jesus has lots of passage, or there's lots of accounts in the Gospels, um, as in Matthew, where Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And at first, as I was trying to prepare this, I thought, well, trying to make a connection here just isn't going to work. But, um, but then I, I began to think practically about what it would mean if I really started to embrace humility, if I really started to repent of my sins and maybe even did this publicly, I think if that happened, I would begin to really, really rely on the mercy of my fellow believers and their, um, their willingness not to judge. Um, humbling ourselves uh, means taking steps to eliminate our status. We may not be able to impress or be respectable in the ways that we were before. In repentance, in public repentance, we may begin to test the boundaries of unconditional love with each other as we allow others to see us as we ourselves as we truly are. I, I think of the scene from Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, uh, which although problematic as a metaphor in much the same way as James's metaphor of the uh, jealous husband, does I think show the kind of mercy and faithfulness we need to be prepared to give one another. In this uh, scene that I'm about to read from, the rich Mr. Rochester has just walked away from a party if you don't know the story, um, this orphan uh, governess comes to take care of this rich man's uh, children, and uh, it was Mr. Rochester, and they start to fall in love, and Mr. Rochester has just walked away from a fancy party, and he's aware that he has a secret, and spoiler alert, the secret is that he has a, uh, a crazy, <laughs> well, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, okay, there, there's, he has a secret. Let's say it's an embarrassing secret. Um, so uh, he's afraid that that secret is about to be revealed. And uh, so Jane Eyre, the governess, follows him away from the party, and Mr. Rochester says, uh, what are they doing, Jane? Laughing and talking, sir. They don't look grave and mysterious as if they'd heard something strange. Not at all. They're full of jests and gaiety. If 
all these people came in a body and spat at me. What would you do, Jake? Turn them out of the room, sir, if I could. He half smiled, but if I were to go to them, and they only looked at me coldly and whispered sneeringly amongst each other and then dropped off and left me one by one, what then? Would you go with them? I rather think not, sir. I should have more pleasure staying with you. To comfort me? Yes, sir, to comfort you as well as I could. And if they laid you under a ban for adhering to me? I should probably know nothing of their ban. And if I did, I should care nothing about it. Then you could dare censure for my sake. I could dare it for the sake of any friend who deserved my adherence, as you, I am sure, do. That is, I hope, the kind of faithfulness that we can all promise one another as we begin to obey our Lord's command to humble ourselves in repentance. It may mean that doing this not only for the rich and attractive among us, but also for those who we thought about in the first section when we thought about someone who really annoys us, um, is what we need to do in order not to judge and also in order to humble ourselves. In the book of Jonah, when the enemies of Israel repented after Jonah preached to them, Jonah was mad at God and his enemies. But God wants us to be more like Jesus, uh, who rejoices even though when those responsible for his crucifixion come to him. So our final application. What do you think of, or who do you think of, when you think, well, at least I'm not like? Why do you think that? And how can you honor that person this week? Okay, I, I have to honestly confess that I, I don't know just yet if I'll be able to obey all the instructions that I've offered here today. Um, just as a reminder, they are, one, pray selflessly, two, love God faithfully, three, humble yourself, and four, do not judge. But I hope and I pray that God will show us, each of us this week, how to complete at least one of these assignments, and that next week we can all truly rejoice in the Lord as we see the beginnings of the blessings that we may receive as we obey. Pray for me, and I'll pray for you.